capitalists. We're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, folks, at long last, we release the audio of our interview with Rory Sutherland. Back in August of this year, Ron and I had the privilege of interviewing for the second time Rory Sutherland. Unfortunately, due to time difference, and you can hear it at the very beginning of the show, uh, Rory was unable to join us at the time for the Soul of Enterprise episode, but we did record the bonus episode, which is available fully on our Patreon site and has been for quite some time. But right now, we wanted to release this to all of you, our TSOE listeners, so enjoy. In the meantime... Feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. All right, great job. Good show, guys. Thanks, Matt. Ed, we have Rory on the line. (laughs) I see that. Hi, Rory. How are you? Hey, Rory. Hello there. Was this okay as a time? Because you... Uh, you, We just ended. But no, this is fine. We, we, We can have you on our bonus episode. Okay, excellent. So, because what, happen, what happens is, is, I think you said eight fifty-seven UK time, which is. Did, did, <laughs> have you been on for an hour? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we're fine. Well, we have you now. We're happy. We're happy. We're okay. Happy. Sure. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. So, Rory, I, I, we have this planned in honor of you. I or I, I have this planned. Uh, you know, we, we know you're not a wine guy, and I'm I'm on the. Um, in in uh, Dallas here, so I'm going to break into my Jamesons to to have our conversation, make it a little bit more exciting. So, <laughs> spirits, spirits yeah, no, no no chateau obscure here, right? No, absolutely not. I'm delighted to hear it. That's fantastic. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I forget the talk where it was, but you picked on one gal in the front who was French about wine, and it was just hysterical. I love that. <laughs> Just because you can stomp grapes. <laughs> it is an interesting question, which is why some alcoholic drinks, essentially the price ceiling hits a kind of asymptote. So, you know, it's very difficult to spend more than £40 on a bottle of gin, say $60. Um, generally, fantastic drinks like sherry don't go very high. And yet wine goes astronomical. And it is, uh, it is a question worth asking, really, because I don't think you can honestly say that the very best wine is inordinately better or more enjoyable as an experience than uh, the very best sherry, the very best gin, or indeed you know, a really well-made cocktail. Do you think it's marketing? Do you think it really um, I, shows the benefit of value of marketing? 
I think a hell of a lot of it is braggadocio and it's bragging rights, uh, simply because of the artificial scarcity of high-end French wine. I, you limit it by vintage, so only a certain number of years can declare a vintage, and it's massively um, limited by terroir and the geography of origin, in the case of old world wine in particular. Right. So um, uh, they've done something very clever there. I mean, they've, they've, in a sense, created mechanisms which look as if they're all about quality. But in reality, they're all about maintaining the idea of scarcity. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, it's, it's worth remembering that, you know, mass production made that difficult because what's interesting about, say, consumer electronics is pretty much, I mean, you can spend $20,000 on a cell phone, but it's a kind of jewel-encrusted thing. Um, it's, right. you know, it's no better as a cell phone than, say, a top-of-the-range Samsung or LG or, or iPhone would be. And so one of the interesting things about consumer electronics is it's created a whole category of consumption. Uh, in both software and hardware, which is, I mean, one wouldn't describe it as egalitarian, but it's certainly highly accessible, by which I mean someone on median income can have a television or a, or a mobile phone handset, which is, okay, if not notionally, the best one you can buy. It's pretty much as good to all intents and purposes. I mean, that, that, that's a very interesting thing, which isn't probably often enough discussed when we have discussions about inequality. Because, of course, inequality is a thing, but the categories in which it's relevant, property in particular, probably education, probably healthcare, um, are relatively few. You might argue that instrumental inequality, in other words, the difference between what a reasonably wealthy person and a reasonably reasonably below average wealth person can actually buy with their money is less stark uh, now than it's ever been. And yet that's never factored into the discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, a lot of economists have asked that question. Would you rather have, you know, Rockefeller's money in 1900 or 2019? And obviously I'd rather have that money today rather than 120 years ago when there's no antibiotics, no air conditioning. I mean, we can go down the list. I mean, just dentistry probably answers the question on its own, doesn't yes. it? <laughs> yes, that too. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the, it was interesting that, that uh, we, we talked a lot about uh, your book at our episode last week. Um, and I wanted to, to ask you about the title, and they wouldn't let you use benign bullshit. Is that what you were just, or just benign BS? <laughs> <laughs> I wondered about that. Funny, Richard Thaler uh, said that he thought the book should have been called Benign Bullshit. Oh, okay. Uh, my, my, only other, my only other issue is Benign Bullshit is undoubtedly part of the thesis behind the book, but it's not the whole gist of the book. Uh, the, point, the point I'm making is that um, once you accept the fact that human perception is not, and this is a product of evolution, uh, human and indeed all animal uh, perception, certainly species by species, possibly individual by individual, uh, is not remotely objective and hasn't evolved to be objective. And once you accept the fact that the way we perceive the world is highly um, contingent on things like context, meaning, social setting, once you accept that, then you have to accept that a form of alchemy is possible in the sense that in order to improve people's um, general enjoyment of the world, you don't have to improve the objective reality at all. You can simply tell a different story about that reality 
And by dint of doing that, you can actually make bad things good. Never mind the fact that you can make good things better. You can, in fact, make bad things good. Simply by changing what people pay attention to, changing the frame of reference, changing the story which people tell about something, uh, fundamentally changes the nature of the experience. And my argument is very simply, and the reason I call the book Alchemy, is that economics, by trying to model itself on physics, which is a completely constrained discipline with universal laws where nothing can be created or destroyed, by trying to model itself on physics and create the same sort of universality, and I suppose the same sort of Newtonian laws, what economics has done is it's more or less told people, don't look for magic because it can't exist. And my contention is, well, if you don't believe in magic, you'll certainly never find it and you won't go looking for it. And I think the hedonic opportunity cost of this pretense that economics maintains that in order to improve people's general uh, enjoyment of life, you have to and can only improve the objective material conditions of their life seems to me an extraordinary wasted opportunity. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, you know, the, the benign pieces where, where I was sort of going with this, because, and I think when we had you on last, we touched the surface of this, but I'd love to get your thoughts on it because it was five years ago and it was before the Trump and Brexit phenomena. Right. And is there a line between the benign piece, you know, and, and a malignant marketing is, you know, where, where, where does this, where does this cross? And I think it's, it's kind of hard. Um, it's tough because I'm very, very conflicted on, say, Brexit or Trump. Uh, in the sense that I don't think, and I wouldn't claim for a second, they're wholly desirable, either of them. But maybe, maybe we should have predicted them earlier, simply because in some ways, I think, what this is, is a backlash against living in a kind of economocracy. So... Countries are controlled by, I, I said this recently on another American radio program, that the problem with the technocratic elite isn't that they're technocratic or elite, but it's that they're all technocratic and elite in exactly the same way. And they have a model of the world where, um, if you like, it's a very, very spread sheets driven it's a world in which you know gdp growth x result happiness gdp growth slightly lower result misery now to be honest there are lots and lots of things which in humans and to be sure in other social animals and indeed in all other animals which contribute to our happiness other than merely those sort of fairly narrow economic metrics. One of which being, by the way, the feeling that you're part of something bigger. And in defense of, say, Trump, for those people who support him, not everybody else, not the other 50%, but he is, if you like, someone from a mold of a leader rather than the mold of an administrator. And I think anybody who's worked in business knows there's a distinction between the two. You know, there, the problem I think often arises is that everybody gets to the top and is promoted on their administrative abilities. And you're very, very good at not dropping the ball. You're very, very good at um, uh, filling in forms. You're very, very good at uh, meeting targets. You're extremely good at perhaps, you know, cheating the metrics. And as a result, you rise through the organization. 
But at the upper points of an organization, you need something which is fundamentally different, which is the ability to carry people with you under the belief that you are part of some greater whole. That you, in other words, you know, there is some objective. Now, if you think about it, you know, uh, we can't generalize here. I mean, Jobs had a remarkable, um, in many ways, on a personal level, but had that remarkable belief that what you were doing, what was it he said to Scully, you know, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling carbonated water, or do you want to come with me and sugar water, or do you want to come with me and change the world? Um, And one of the problems, I think, of the standard sort of neoliberal approach to business is that it absolutely elevates the value of administrative ability um, to a point where the people who are now most successful within it aren't very good at the wider storytelling job, at making people feel that actually, no, 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 we're not merely here trying to meet the next quarterly budget forecast. There is actually something more going on, which is, you know, not many people, I mean, unless you're on some enormous bonus scheme, i.e. at the very top of an organization, not many people get out of bed every morning to enrich their shareholders, to be absolutely honest. They might get out of bed every morning to avoid getting fired, I accept that, that fear works. But if you want to motivate people beyond that fairly narrow, uh, you know, stick-driven incentive, some ability to paint a picture of what you're working towards and how it might be of, you know, wider significance than merely uh, satisfying, I don't know, your largest shareholder, which is, by the way, I mean, the shareholder value movement's kind of incoherent because it doesn't say anything about um, time frame. You know, which, 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 shareholder, which shareholder am I supposed to impress? Am I supposed to impress some weird algorithm in a shed in New Jersey, which is probably trading the stock about, you know, 76 times per millisecond? Or is it someone's pension? That's another question. It doesn't answer that question. Um, it also probably does make the distinction, which is that it should be called, in any case, the share owner value movement, not the shareholder value movement in the sense that the interest of an intermediary stockholder is not very well aligned with the long-term interests of the ultimate beneficiary. So ends our first segment with Rory Sutherland. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is thesoulofenterprise.com. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise welcome back to the soul of enterprise and now segment two of our interview with rory sutherland so I, mean, I think there's something deeply um, unnerving about what's happened in contemporary capitalism, which is probably a product partly of information technology, which is the ability to measure everything and report with increasing frequency has led people into the assumption that because you can do something, therefore naturally you should. And I think one of the things that will happen over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years is we'll start to discover that that assumption that because you can do something more, uh, you know, more data isn't necessarily better, more frequent reporting isn't necessarily more informative, uh, for example. Um, uh, the fact that email's instantaneous, which seemed such a miracle at first, to some extent actually renders it into, a, the fact that email is very easy and free and instantaneous, which seemed to make it the perfect form of communication, has in fact, the very absence of friction and cost, has turned it into a kind of disaster. And so one of the things I think we'll need to discover is that the natural assumption of kind of tech is that more, faster, cheaper, etc., automatically constitute an improvement. But actually, just as you don't improve a complex system by improving all the individual parts in isolation. In the same way, I think there are lots of things which we've improved in the last 10, 15 years, which are improvements in and of themselves. But when you overlay them on the, um, I mean, there were huge advantages to the fact that sending a memo in a 1970s corporation was a bit of a pain. And the reason for that is, first of all, it wasn't a pain if you were senior, because you could get something typed in 10 minutes. But then the memos from senior people were more important than the memos from junior people, okay? <laughs> Secondly, if you were junior and you wanted a memo typed in the Ogilvy of 1975, you had to burn favors with the typing pool if you wanted it done quickly. People have actually said if you worked in Ogilvy in the 1970s, it was sensible for a junior person to spend half an hour a day sort of buttering up people in the type ring pool and going around in a sort of Terry Thomas way of, hello, um, <laughs> generally just, just, just dispensing charm and flattery because it meant that when you suddenly needed something done urgently, you had a kind of favor bank to, to draw upon. And, of course, what, what it meant was that people only sent communication when it was genuinely necessary or useful or because they were very, very important, which meant that before you'd received the communication, it had already been through a filtration mechanism. Now, 
the burden of filtration falls on you because pretty much your email inbox, unlike your physical inbox, is essentially a to-do list to which the entire planet has access. Access, yeah. And, and um, so, so what, what's very interesting is we, you know, the, those assumptions that, for example, low friction is necessarily a good thing. I mean, yeah, very, very dangerous. The assumption that because we can report something weekly or in real time, this will give us somehow a far better um, uh, view of how a company is doing, also pretty dangerous. Um, you know, the setting of more and more metrics, for example, the attempt to abandon subjective judgment and replace it with objective judgment for the purposes of kind of semi-automation, that also is problematic because, let's be absolutely honest, you can game the system when it's designed that way, and people do. Yeah, yeah. We um, call it the effing the effing debate. The, di- hmm. the difference between effectiveness and efficiency, right? And there's there there's the cult of efficiency in business today. This uh, cult to absolute efficiency, but is it effective? Right? The Druck, Drucker's line about you know there's nothing so wasteful as that which is doing it, 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 which is ineffective. If you're doing efficiently, what shouldn't be done at all? No, 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 absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's very interesting too because I think there are areas of business. There are probably areas of business where, to be honest, efficiency and effectiveness aren't too badly connected. There must be areas of logistics where, to be absolutely honest, you can define in human-free, perception-free terms uh, the job that needs to be done. And because you can perfectly define the job that needs to be done in advance, and it's replicable and predictable, then I would guess, I mean, we've got to be careful here, because in, even in logistics, you have the second order thing, which is to do, I mean, I've always thought that just in time, I mean, just in time manufacturing is, um, I mean, is that, a, is that genuinely a good thing? Or is it an accountancy hack? Because I've always wondered, you know, you, you, we, don't, we don't actually need our lives like that, do we? We don't buy food on the way home from work every day. We have a fridge, right? And the reason for that is, you know, it gives us a certain amount of flexibility and a certain amount of resilience. You know, there's a little bit of a buffer that if we happen to miss the shop one day, we don't starve to death. Um, and yet businesses seem to view any kind of inventory sitting in store as some sort of absolute anathema. But anyway, but in logistics, I mean, allowing for the fact that you have to be careful about what's long-term efficient versus short-term efficient, nonetheless, you know, a logistics guy who sits around his job effectively going, I'm going to try and make this more efficient, much of the time probably isn't all that wrong-headed. In areas like marketing, it's hugely difficult because in marketing, you're dealing with Um, First of all, uh, you're dealing with a psychological objective and not a technological one. Uh, Things aren't necessarily replicable. You're not trying to do the the same thing as your competitors. So by dint, uh, you know, there's there's an automatic requirement for some degree of differentiation. Um, But also, I mean, I would argue that a large part of marketing may be successful for reasons you can neither predict or plan in advance, nor can you necessarily measure in retrospect. And I started having this discussion with someone the other day, which is the general way in which we approach marketing is, okay, we have a strategy, marketing supports that strategy by doing X. 
Therefore, we design our marketing approach with the exclusive intention of obtaining or achieving X, and we measure the effectiveness of our marketing by the uh, efficiency with which it attains that narrowly defined and predefined goal. Okay? Now, I don't know what proportion of marketing is like that, but I will say it's a lot. Now, let, I'll, I'll let me give a parallel to this, okay? Either you've got teenage children or sons or yes. daughters. Yeah, okay. Now, generally, if you've got teenagers, they want to go out a lot, and they want to go out on Saturday night particularly. And part of the reason they want to go out on Saturday night is because everybody else goes out on Saturday night. But if you ask them, why, why are you going out on Saturday night? You know, because I'm 53. I go, what's wrong with a Discovery Channel documentary? You know, <laughs> why do you have to go and spend all this money? You know, for goodness sake. Okay. They probably answer, basically, I might get lucky. Now, they don't know in advance how they're going to get lucky. What they know is that going out massively exposes you to an asymmetric outcome where upside massively outweighs downside. Okay? Now, in the same way, I would argue, and they say that what they do know... Now, they don't know how they're going to get lucky. It might be they meet the love of their life. It might mean that they meet a very short-term attachment. It might be they make some new mates. It might be that mean they meet up with some old mates. Whatever it may be, they don't know in advance. What they do know is that if you stay home, none of that's going to happen. You know, you're not going to be sitting at home watching that Discovery Channel documentary and a line of sort of supermodels suddenly knocks at the door going, where have you been all my life? Okay, it's not going to happen. <laughs> now, an argument I would say for advertising is very simply that fame for a business which is basically decent and upright and honest. In other words, you don't want to be famous if your chief executive has a bizarre romantic interest in goats, okay? If there's some potential scandal waiting in the wings, being obscure is a pretty good thing. But by and large, if you're running an honest, decent business, which is doing the right thing, fame exposes you to a huge amount of fortune which is overwhelmingly good, not bad. Now, you can't predict in advance. It may be that if you're a famous company, when your chief executive rings someone else up, they return the phone call, okay? You know, my guess would be if you're the chief executive of General Electric, other than a couple of presidents, basically people return your calls, right? Okay. Um, secondly, fame means that people come to you first with good ideas because they've heard of you. People come and work for you for less money because they'd rather work for someone who's famous. Um, talented people are more eager to work for someone who's famous. People with good ideas approach you out of the blue. Lots and lots of things. Other companies come to you and say, could you work with us on this exciting thing? None of which will happen if you remain obscure and non-famous. Now, you can't predict in advance. I'm not even sure you can quantify it in retrospect. But then should we set the quantification bar so high that it becomes impossible in business to do anything unless in advance you can predict precisely how it's going to work? Because evolution doesn't work that way. And my hunch is that the reason evolution doesn't work that way is that evolution has learned over a few million years that we don't really live in a predictable environment. 
that life is always throwing weird at you and the best thing you can do is position yourself in a way that you avoid misfortune and are well exposed to potential good fortune and that's about as good as you can get I mean, if you talk to hugely successful businesses, I remember talking to a chief executive of a business worth of over a billion dollars. Essentially, he was selling stuff out of his garage until some weird news program like his local Fox affiliate picked up on him and just ran a brief story about him. And it somehow just spread. With my own book, okay, um, I was there kind of selling quite happily. I'm really content with how it's selling. And then... Now, no, at no point would I, I have ever said on, on, with my book, I've got to get on Glenn Beck, I've got to get on the Chris Evans Breakfast Show. But Penguin put out a whole load of um, publicity. One person who picked up on it seems to have been your Dallas neighbor, Glenn Beck. Uh, another person seems to have been Chris Evans, who runs this very big Virgin Radio Breakfast Show in the UK. Chris invited me on. He happened to be in Cannes when I was in Cannes, so he chose to interview me. Total fluke. You would never have predicted any of this. He liked the book, so the following day he talked about the book a bit more. Um, what then happened is on Amazon in the UK, the book was number eight. You know, it was outselling The Hungry Little Caterpillar. You know, it was outselling kind of Harry Potter and Dan Brown. Okay, only for four days. But in a world in which luck is quite path-dependent, the luckier you are, the more exposed you are to future luck. Actually doing things where you have no idea in what, sh what shape or form success might come, but you're simply making a hell of a lot of noise because it mass maximizes your chances of getting lucky in some unspecified way. Seems to me a reasonable basis for strategy, but no one today will be allowed to do it because it doesn't fit the efficiency paradigm. So ends our second segment with Rory Sutherland. Want to remind you that the complete interview is available on our Patreon site, patreon.com slash TSOE. And now a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And now, segment three of our August interview with Rory Sutherland. And you say logic kills off magic, which I love. And then you equate marketing to military strategy, meaning you shouldn't be predictable. No, I mean, there are lots and lots of ways in which marketing, by definition, shouldn't attempt to be logical because logic gets you to the same place as everybody else. It causes you to attack the same target audience as everybody else, to to devise new products for the same people as everybody else is devising new products for. When in fact, what you discover is a huge amount of innovation comes from left field. Um, uh, Extraordinary, one of the things I mentioned in my book, I think, is the extraordinary innovations which are developed first for people with disabilities. And then what you realize is that a disability, a disabled person, disability is much more common than we realize because all of us are disabled some of the time. Okay? A disabled person is disabled all of the time. Lots of people, so this is 10 times 1 and 1 times 10, okay? Right, right. Uh, mm-hmm. You want, I mean, originally I think in new buildings you have to have door handles rather than doorknobs, and the reason is that people without hands can't operate uh, doorknobs very well, and neither can robots for that either. But actually, anybody carrying two mugs of coffee is by definition, they've lost the use of their hands. It's only temporary, but they can open a door handle with their elbow, whereas a doorknob leaves them completely foiled. And so there's this wonderful case where the Labradoodle, which is a kind of Frankenstein dog, which is a cross between a Labrador and a Poodle, it was developed, I'm pretty sure I'm right in this, which is for blind Australians who are allergic to dog hair. Now, they needed an obedient dog to act as a guide dog, but if you're allergic to dog hair, it's no good having the standard Labrador issue because um, uh, you, you basically spend your whole time not only unable to see, but essentially with a streaming allergy running. Right. And so they bred the poodle, which, of course, doesn't shed. It's a pretty intelligent dog, the poodle. They didn't just choose it at random, but it also has hair that doesn't uh, shed at all. And this solved the problem. It might have been New Zealand. Was it blind New Zealanders or blind Australians? One or the other. Uh, uh, and what they suddenly realized is, hold on a second, a really obedient dog that doesn't drop hair all over the place, never mind our special target audience, this is a pretty damn good dog. Because it'll do what you tell it, but if it doesn't do what you tell it, at least if it jumps on the sofa, it doesn't leave the whole thing covered in, um, uh, you know, in, in, in shed dog hairs. And so quite often, you know, very interestingly, you know, um, that business of putting the shampoo bottle, I don't know who mandated that or whether it was, where it was adopted, where shampoo opens at the top and conditioner opens at the bottom. Okay. Now, that would make perfect sense for the blind, but most of us in the shower, first thing in the morning, where you can't wear spectacles, you probably haven't put your contact lenses in, the place is full of steam, we're effectively blind. And so, um, in, in many ways, actually, designing for what seems to be a narrow audience can sometimes be an extraordinary way of solving a problem which some people have to endure all the time, but many people have to endure some of the time. BT in the UK developed a phone with enormous buttons, which was designed for the seriously sight impaired. And to their surprise, it became their best-selling phone, because as a bedside phone, 
um, what you the last thing you want if you've taken your contact lenses out, you haven't got your spectacles on, you suddenly need to dial a number in, a, in an emergency. The last thing you want is those minuscule little key buttons on your phone. And um, uh, it, 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 I think I also found that very interesting. I also found it interesting, by the way, because if you do loads of things, lots of things are successful for reasons entirely different from that envisaged, to be honest. Um, uh, there's there's a, a joke I make in the book that the value of a dishwasher isn't really that you <laughs> use it to wash up your plates. It's that it keeps your dirty plates out of sight. I can vouch for that. And actually, if you ever have your dishwasher broken down, doing the washing up isn't really the frustrating thing. The really frustrating thing is looking at your washing up. That's the real pain. Swimming pool, my joke is that you don't really buy a swimming pool to swim in. It's a license to walk around your garden in hot weather in a bathing costume without looking like an idiot. Um, and I, I love it when technology gets adopted for... Um, there's a pub chain in, in the UK called Weatherspoons. And they developed an app with table ordering. So you can sit at your table. Every single Weatherspoons table has a number kind of etched into the corner of the table. And you can order drinks and food, pay for it on the app, and just sit there. Very good thing because, to be honest, I mean, if there's a queue at the bar, too much of your weekly catch-up with your friends is spent with one of them absent queuing for drinks. Okay? Morning, yeah. But then what happened fantastically is my kids, who are now 18, so it's legal, okay, what, what, what teenagers started doing is when it was their birthday and they went to Spoons, as they call it, uh, dropping the weather for some reason, when they went to Spoons, they'd actually share on social media that it was their birthday and they were, that they were at table number 143 at the Tunbridge Wells Spoons and all their friends would use the app to buy them drinks. Now, <laughs> that's great. That, that, that did happen, I think, buying other people drinks in a, you know, in a bar did happen in the kind of raffish pre-political correctness era of the United States. And it was generally something that a creepy guy did, wasn't it? In right. American movies, it's the thing the creepy guy does, right, right. which he sends over a drink to somebody, you know, which is generally suggests or, he, he has some Draper ulterior motive. Yeah, yeah, if you're really damn suave, you can get away with that. Too. I, I, basically, I basically have the police on my back. I've been cuffed within about five minutes by trying doing that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but um, um, but what, what, what is so interesting about that is you've actually inadvertently reinvented an old practice, albeit a much more sociable one. And it was, I, I'm sure that nobody designing the app it ever, never occurred to them that this might be a possible use. I, I always find that, you know, when things are used for entirely... I mean, Uber, interestingly, I'd be intrigued to know how many Uber cabs are actually ordered for people's kids. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I've often wondered yeah. about that. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I, had a friend, a I had a friend who took an Uber to a hospital. He was having a heart situation. To, you know, they don't like you to do this, by the way. They do not. No, I was going to say, yeah. No, Roy, I just yeah, love the book. The book is just phenomenal. And I, and we could spend hours with you, but I have one question for you. You know, this where logic kills off magic and marketing needs to be more like military strategy. And you also say, and I love this line as well, engineering doesn't allow for magic, but psychology does. And I'm just wondering, you know, you got us because we're Austrians and we totally buy into yeah. the subjective theory of value. But this alchemy has got to be a tough sale to most C-suite finance MBA types and yeah. businesses. I'm delighted to say that another book's just come out by, I think it's Donald Hoffman. 
And it's, yeah. if yes. my if my book, I suppose, is called, um, uh, you know, essentially is an attack on rationality. His book is called the case, um, uh, the case against reality. So his argument is that humans essentially have evolved a kind of perception of the world whose relation to the real physical universe is almost like a, a his, this is his analogy, a user interface. That, you know, when, when you click on a file on a computer, okay, there's an image there which dates back to the 1950s idea of the filing cabinet, and it says file manager, okay, and it uses a skeuomorphic, great word, um, this is where, rather like a digital camera has to go click, because otherwise we assume <laughs> you have to build in right, some right. of the attributes of a device's predecessor to make it um, comprehensible or easy to use. And there are examples of skeuomorphism all over the place, the Parthenon has these strange little decorative things which date back from the time when temples were made out of wood. Um, and they, they, when they made temples out of stone, they kind of fluted the columns as a kind of, you know, uh, simply as a kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, as a kind of aesthetic hangover from the time things were made of wood. But um, the, interesting thing, um, the interesting thing there is that um, uh, when you're clicking on that file, it's actually a representation of a whole load of electrons and God knows what which is going on, which has nothing to do with any of that. And it's made a file simply to aid comprehension and action. And the argument is that, um, and probably before Donald Hoffman and in the popular field, me, uh, Robert Trivers was a very early proponent mm -hmm. of this. And by the way, I mean, it makes, once you accept the fact that stories change behavior, the idea that a story that isn't true can't be useful. Okay, so this Dawkins attack on religion is ridiculous because whether or not it's objectively true is surely is irrelevant. That's like saying if you wear spectacles, you have a problem with objective reality. No, no, no. There must be, just as there are corrective lenses for vision, for a social species, there must be corrective narratives for behavior. And one of the simplest ones, by the way, if you look at totem poles, is act as though someone's watching you. So the totem pole, or God, you know, um, is essentially a narrative which suggests that you act as though, and in the case of the totem pole, it's literally a thing in a post in the middle of the community with eyes staring at everybody, uh, which you believe possesses magical powers. Now, that's going to have beneficial effects on behavior just as your spectacles. So, so, so Dawkins saying, well, some of these things may not be strictly speaking true is kind of crazy, okay? Because stories aren't there to be absolutely true. They're not scientific papers. They're there to convey modes of thinking which might be useful, beneficial either collectively or individually. And, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, if Dawkins gets really angry, why doesn't he get angry with, say, the tiger who came to tea or children's literature? This is absolutely ridiculous. You have, a, you know, a 700-pound carnivorous quadruped. The likelihood that he's going to sit at a table with some children and drink a hot beverage, this is absolutely ridiculous. Of course, no, no, it's not there for that purpose. And on that note, we conclude segment three of our interview with Rory Sutherland from August of this year. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. It's time now for our fourth and final segment with Rory Sutherland. I want to remind you that the entire interview is available on our Patreon site at patreon.com slash T-S-O-E. If you accept the fact that the perception of the world is, now this is Don's other point, which I make in my book, coincidentally, species-specific. A television is species-specific. You design it specifically for the perception of higher primates. I think only gorillas and us but a TV is designed around the vagaries of human perception, and we happen to detect red, green, and blue in cones in our eyes, so the TV is designed for that purpose. If you wanted to make a TV that was objective, it would cost billions of pounds, because you'd have to be able to produce every single color in the spectrum in every single pixel. So if you didn't rely on the alchemy of perception, we couldn't have television, we couldn't have print, color print either, by the way. Okay, because it works with the three-color, four-color print process. I mean, uh, pigeons, if you produce magazines for pigeons, you'd have to have something like uh, five or six kinds of ink, and one of them would have to be ultraviolet, I think. Uh, Snakes, you'd have to have a bit of infrared going on, because otherwise they go Mm. terribly lifeless. You know, I don't know. Now, once you accept the fact that, that the way in which we design signals that humans respond to is not independent of perception or context or species dependent things that we're sensitive to and that we're not sensitive to and that's what economics is trying to do in a sense it's trying to create sort of universal perception free you know laws once you once you effectively create that um uh, that once you believe that Certain things that are easy are going to be impossible. You won't, you, certain things you, that seem perfectly logical to you will be 
ineffectual, you know, producing colours out, no TV produces colours outside the visible spectrum, because what's the point? Now, I would argue that a lot of governments spend a lot of time interfering with economic things which effectively are outside the visible spectrum. Um, one of the things that I, I said recently, this is after the book was published, someone rang me up and said, what do you think about tax cuts? I said, they're crap. And they said, what do you mean they're crap? I said, well, like, like a television, I've just got this 4K ultra high definition TV. To be honest, I'm a cynic, I know that in three weeks' time, it'll just be a television because I'll have become acclimatized to it. The same, I think, happens with tax cuts. Now, my suggestion is don't cut taxes, refund people, Right? once a year with a lump sum. Now, the US system does this to a degree because most people seem to choose to overpay, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But actually, one of the interesting things would be, um, very simply, there are lots of people who say we should pay more tax. We'll give them the opportunity. So say, you are due a rebate of $1,000. Why don't you give $500 to Medicare? And we'll give you a car sticker saying I gave 50% of my rebate to Medicare. Now, the reason that might work is, A, it puts those people on the spot. Okay? You know, there are a hell of a lot of my friends who are basically crapping on about how everyone should pay more tax while themselves pursuing every bloody tax break they can find. Okay? And it at least puts those people on the spot because you can say, well, if you believe more money should go into this, why didn't you pay? But secondly, if you think about it, first of all, and there are a few interesting things that, are, that appeal to me about that. One of which is that it's much, much easier to get people to accept less of a windfall than it is to get them to actually make a donation. And there are a whole lot of actually perfectly rational reasons about that, that we are happy receiving less of a, uh, of a bonus than we are actually sacrificing money that we've already got. We view those the value of those two things very, very differently. So if you want people voluntarily to pay more tax, that creates a much easier mechanism by which you might do it. The other thing I, I, I say, which I think is an interesting thing, which I think is a defense of the whole idea of libertarian paternalism in the world, is that if you encourage people to do something, but you don't make it mandatory, one of the great advantages of that is that no one, I think, would say, okay, a hard-pressed uh, family or single parent with four children, no one would expect that person to donate any of their tax rebates to uh, a good cause. But a childless dual-income couple in their 50s whose house has just been had gone up in value $300,000 and had just taken their fourth foreign holiday of the year, you could reasonably place some moral obligation on them to give some more money. So one of the things that always appeals to me about persuasion is that persuasion takes account of circumstances in an intelligent, context-sensitive way in which neither economics nor law generally do very well. So the example I gave about this is, why don't we persuade people, if you want to reduce carbon emissions, why don't we persuade people to put their washing machines on um, late at night? Because, uh, I don't know how it is in the US, in the UK, broadly speaking, at about 11 o'clock at night, the UK is kind of half nuclear powered, basically. Uh, the amount of carbon you'll generate by uh, putting on, say, a tumble dryer is significantly less than it would be in the middle of the day. Well, but the economists would say, no, 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 we need to have a pricing mechanism to obtain this. We can't just ask people to do it. We need to have a pricing mechanism. 
And the, 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 the legal person would say, no, no, we need to make it illegal to put on your washing machine. until." <laughs> now, the point about those two, and this is where it's important, is that there are, there are a lot of people who shouldn't put their washing machine on um, in the middle of the night. If it's above someone else's bedroom, that's not a good idea. It'll go into the spin cycle at three o'clock in the morning and drive them insane, okay? If you work night shifts, you shouldn't leave your house and leave the tumble dryer running. There are lots of people who, by dint of circumstance, have a perfectly good reason not to change their behavior. And the great virtue of persuasion over other means is that anybody with a good excuse doesn't have to be persuaded. Right. And it strikes me that that fundamental point about the libertarian value of something enables you to ask more of people simply because you're asking it, you're not requiring it. And, you know, to be absolutely honest, if you think about it, I find it a bit weird. Do you find it a bit weird that the tax system takes no account of age? That, that, that strikes me as a bit, it's a bit weird, isn't it, when you think about it? So two things the tax system doesn't make any distinction between is uh, one person who, for one lucky year of their life, earns $200,000, but for the rest of their life, earns fifty. Okay, right. He's taxed at the same rate as someone who earns $200,000 for 10 years in a row. Yeah. Yep. I used to let you, Rory, back in the 70s and maybe even a little into the 80s, they let you average your income over like five years. So if you had one of these incredible years. Windfall years. Yeah, yeah. But they got rid of that. They only allow that a lot of corporations to do it now and then we complain about it. You know, corporations would do it in a massive way. The second thing would be, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Because when you're 25, you do need money to buy s***, okay? Because you don't own much Okay, and also to be honest, you need experiences when you're. I, I've kind of had enough of experiences to be honest. Once you're 53, you go, you know, it's terrible having teenage kids because when do you want to go on holiday? Well, we went somewhere last year and it was nice, so why don't we go there again? And the kids will go, oh, I want to go to the carnival in Rio, <laughs> right? Okay, so to some extent, for lots of Darwinian reasons apart from anything else and lots of practical reasons, your need to accumulate things diminishes with age. Now, you might argue, by the way, your need for health care massively increases with age. So it seems a bit weird that young people in the UK essentially fund the NHS to the same degree that old people do, despite the fact that, broadly speaking, they make pretty minuscule use of its services. So the fact that actually the tax system has been designed by economists with no idea of species specificity... And this is where I come back to it. You know, if you, you know, if you look at, you know, the, the tax system for ants and bees would be fundamentally different to the tax system for humans, because what humans need from life isn't the same. So sorry, folks, but we need to end our interview with Rory Sutherland here. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Next week, our show is Free Rider Friday for November of 2019. We'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, do visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. 
Bitcoin.com.